0: Well, Bible literacy or knowledge is an interesting thing, uh, whether it's Jay Leno or even right here. And uh, last Sunday we had those comment cards that a lot of you filled out, and you're answering the question, uh, does God help those who help themselves? It's, it's not in the Bible. It's not a Bible verse, and we're doing a series here on deeply misunderstood Bible verses, so, you know, gotcha on that one. Um, but about half of you... Um, act as though this verse is in the Bible, and we're going to dig into that a little bit or a lot, and you're going to um, see how this whole thing kind of works out, all right? So, because I think the words and how we believe or understand God helps those who help themselves reveals so much more about how you perceive the world around you, how your, what your view of life is, and, of course, who is God in your life. It's more than just simply a belief statement or some sort of saying or a quote. But it may not be in the Bible, but we do have these words of Jesus. And I'd like for you to um, stand. We're reading the gospel. And if you'd stand with me, please. And when we get to the boldface stuff, for your own uh, ability to absorb what we're doing, If you would say the stuff in the boldface, that would be great. Join me on that part. Okay, so I'll read and then you guys read on the boldface. I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will uh, bear even more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Have a seat. So apart from me, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Obviously, we do many things without Jesus, uh, from the ridiculously simple to the complex. Jesus didn't come over to my house and make my oatmeal this morning or help me get dressed or anything like that. Even the more complex stuff, uh, getting up in the morning and, you know, hitting the alarm and making that decision to go to work. Or if you go to school, you know, is Jesus the one dragging you out of bed? Probably not, although you may feel like it sometimes. So after looking over everyone's responses from last Sunday, I don't think there is one person here who believes we should do nothing and God does everything for us. That you would actually just lie on the sofa and watch TV all day, and then it's God's job to actually get you to do anything. Nobody's there. And, and no parent would ever want to tell their kid, you know, just God's going to take care of you and do everything. You don't have to study for the EA, you know, on the test. You'll just get it. That would be bad parenting. I don't, I, God's a parent, right? He's a creator. I mean, he's the ideal parent and I don't think God's sitting around saying like don't worry I'll study the test for you now just magically put that stuff in your head so I don't think anybody's really thinking it goes that far or that ridiculous of a thing usually what has happened with this sort of a does God help them does God help those who help themselves this has usually parked itself right squarely in pure theology for the last 500 years or so since the Protestant Reformation God helps those who help themselves, has, has positioned itself as sort of a doctrinal, dogma, theological debate. This is where I was for at least a couple of decades. And it kind of went like this. It sort of went like, are we totally depraved and unable to save ourselves? Unable to even have a thought about God without God starting the conversation? God being the prime mover or the hound of heaven and he's chasing you down or or do we somehow participate in our own salvation that's the debate that usually gets set up on this sort of thing and in my earliest days just, i just love the debate this sort of thing of course you know god helps those who help themselves then i would have answered it is wrong that is not in the bible it is unbiblical and therefore right out it's it's not good I would have argued that it, that it would be totally unfair to think that some folks are smarter than other folks and they had a thought about God and they pursued God and then God reciprocated and helped them. I would have said That's, that would not, that makes some people smart and some people dumb. That's not cool. And then the other side would counter and say, yeah, well, I think it's unfair to picture a God who would predestine some to salvation and predestine others or at least ignore them to damnation. And, you know... Fight on, right? So, and I'm sure there's some fellow theological nerds here like me uh, who would love to still debate this. Uh, God help those who help themselves line exactly these theological terms. But I don't think when any of us answered, God helps those who help themselves, whether we believe or agree with it to some degree or anything else, or even in any given time, has this ever been a theological comment? This is not a doctrinal statement. This is a relational statement. It's about a relationship with God. God helps those who help themselves is all about a relationship. Spirituality, everyone, is relational. The entire Bible is about a relationship. It's a particular people called the Jews and their relationship with God. And it's a typical story for all the rest of us in humanity. But let us never forget that all of spirituality is relational. We can talk about it every now and then theologically, but it's relational. If we couch the non-biblical phrase, this non-biblical phrase in relational terms, terms, then Jesus's you can do nothing without me, apart from me, really should sound something more like, as we translate it into, apart from me you should do nothing. (laughs) Why would you want to do anything without me? You won't bear any lasting fruit. Your life will be barren. This isn't a condemnation. This is just a statement of the result of doing things without him. You're cut off. You might as well just pick up all the branches and throw it on the fire. No taste. No light. Just existing. Just an animal. Getting up in the morning, going through your drill, and going to bed at night. And doing it again the next day. To be apart from Jesus is to be dead. It's like being a zombie. You're you're not really alive and you're not really dead. You're just existing. Ever feel like a zombie? I'm convinced the church's number one job is to teach you to pray. That's our job. There's a lot of other things we might want to think the job is, but it is really teaching us to pray. And by the word pray, I mean to be in a deep, rich relationship with the one with God, with the Creator, and to follow Jesus as the way to get there. Our goal in life is not to be simply busy or successful or anything else out there that you'll hear. Our goal in life is to be deeply connected within the epic story of us all, the story that was started by the one Creator, the Almighty, and following Jesus through it, journeying together with Jesus. So in the middle of this biblical story about a relationship, In walks, right in the middle of the Bible, is the 23rd Psalm. Perhaps you've heard it. It's probably the most famous passage in all of Scripture. This one is in the Bible. Perhaps you've heard it. Perhaps at a funeral or something like that. But uh, this is what it is, and it says this, the 23rd Psalm. You'll probably recognize it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me right paths for his namesake. Now, imagine for a moment what our lives would be like if our lives were lived according to just even the very first few words, just the first five words, the Lord is my shepherd. What would that mean? That's an ownership statement. It's a relationship statement. What does David mean by God is our shepherd? Well, well, shepherds need sheep, yeah? And it's safe to assume that David meant that he was God's sheep and that we are God's sheep. He compares humans like us to sheep, and if you dig around the Bible very much, you'll see this sheep metaphor come up all the time. Now, um, if you're like me, and you grew up in the suburbs, you really don't know much about sheep. I don't know how many sheep people is. Somebody stopped me afterwards uh, on service and said, hey, we used to raise sheep, and and I think they're glad they didn't raise sheep anymore, because sheep are difficult. Sheep are difficult. We just don't know much about sheep, but we know a lot about cows because we drive down country highways and we see cows. And cows just look, they just look really independent. They don't need anybody or anything. We know a lot about cows, very little about sheep. And we see ourselves as these cows in the world, like we're self-made, independent. You know, uh, we just eat grass until it's hamburger time, and then that's good. And that's what we do. We can make it through the night. We can make it through the storm. We can do it, and with God's help, we'll make it. But we really don't know what God's help looks like, so we just kind of go on with our cow life. So, I mean, do you see yourself like as a cow? Like, okay, well, let me get you to the sheep part, and then you'll figure out if you're a cow or a sheep. Um, Philip Keller is a real-life shepherd by trade, and a few years ago, Philip Keller wrote a book to tell us what it is like to live day and night with sheep, being a real shepherd. (laughs) Keller, he owned his sheep. And that's an important thing you first have to understand about being a shepherd is whether you're an owner or you're a hired hand. He saved up his money and he bought each one of his sheep, all 30 of them, he bought himself. As the sheep's owner, he said healthy sheep require four things to be healthy. Now, this is talking about us, so you might want to translate here a little bit. The first thing sheep need in order to be healthy is that they have to be free from fear. Free from fear. Second, they have to be free from friction with other sheep. They must not be fearful of other sheep. And you're like, I didn't know other sheep feared other sheep. Well, they do. Third, just like humans. Third, healthy sheep need to be free from parasites and disease. And, and fourth, they must healthy sheep... Um, Have to be free from hunger. Sounds a lot like me trying to raise our kids. You know, trying to keep the parasites off of them. It's it's part of what we do. When Keller read the next verse in the 23rd Psalm, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He knew exactly what his fellow shepherd, David, meant. Sheep are nearly impossible to get to lie down. They're too scared. They're too skittish. Only when he was physically present amongst the sheep would they lie down and rest around him? If he walked away, all the sheep got up. And sheep also then have a pecking order, or rather a budding order. They butt each other. The, the, the dominant sheep bully the weaker sheep. And as soon as he came among them, though, all the budding stopped. Keller made sure his sheep were always in the greenish pastures. They needed a shepherd to lead them around. They just don't go find the green grass, amazingly enough. He said that next to his flock was this other flock that was operated by a tenant sheepman, a hired hand. And those sheep were thin and diseased, full of parasites. Their pasture was burned up, overeaten, brown and dusty. Their water was dirty. He said he would never forget the image of those poor sheep looking through the fence at his lush pasture of green grass their faces all bleak and pitiful and blankly staring, wishing they could be over there. How safe and satisfied we feel, everyone, depends on who's guiding our lives. This is why the Bible talks about sheep so much and not cows. So many of us, many of us are led by a poor shepherd, and that poor shepherd is us. We beat ourselves up with unrealistic expectations for being, not being fantastic parents, We slaughter ourselves for not making more money and having the finer things. We're constantly looking at another pasture saying, you know, wow, I wish I was over there. This terrible green grass all around me. There's got to be something better. We enslave ourselves to outrageously jam-packed, busy schedules that leave us staring blankly at the television at night. And in the early morning, if we hit the news, snooze button way too many times, we tell ourselves deep down like we're lazy and we're worthless, and if anybody ever found out, they'd let us go. We make a terrible shepherd over ourselves. The self-made person who believes they're captain of their own ship, the one who believes they know best how to lead their life, they live a cheap imitation of the real life story. They believe they're feasting on the best there is, and the sad news is they don't even know what the best is. So we watch television to find out. But they don't know when to quit, and they don't know how to stop, and they don't have any alternatives. So they just keep on being their own shepherd. They want to be a cow, but they're not. Consider then for a moment Jesus Christ as their shepherd. There's none better, you know. He is the one person who changed the world the most. And he did it in the most alternative way. He selflessly gave himself to others. Never was there a more balanced leader. Not an ego trip, nothing like that. His heart broke for the downtrodden and the sick and the lame and the empty souls. But he was stern as steel when it came to phonies and fakes. He called it the way he saw it always defending somebody. He was righteous, he was consistent. He didn't seek power or position. He hung out with fishermen and prostitutes, the diseased outcasts and foreigners. He set people free from their mistakes and their pasts was erased. He understood what it meant to forgive people and for people to forgive themselves. He never abandoned his flock. And in the ultimate of God's plan, he died for his very own, his own sheep. There is no better shepherd than Jesus. He is the model human being. He knows each one of us in this room by name, and he calls you. And he's calling to you and me, and he's saying to each of us, I know your heartaches, I know your concerns, I know your needs, I have watched you, I have studied you, I know you better than you know yourself. You are mine. I bought you with a price. I bought you with my own blood. I sacrificed for you. I took away your sin, I made you clean. Do you know my voice? You belong to me. I'm amazed at God that he would care about us this much when we don't even care about ourselves. But this is the nature of a shepherd and not a rancher. What I wouldn't give to sear into each person's heart at Lakeland over all these years Is the very, very basic center core truth that each one of us matter to God. That there is a relationship with God. That God has started and he wants with you. What I wouldn't give to see that happen. Most of all of our pain around here is because people believe that they're self-sufficient and they have to fix everything themselves. The Lord is my shepherd is no cute, precious moments Bible passage, everyone. It's a declaration of ownership. David does not say, the Lord makes a good shepherd when life gets hard or you fall into a gap or when we can't explain things like cancer or accidents or the Lord makes a good co-pilot shepherd. So if I'm kind of asleep at the wheel, he takes over. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. My shepherd says, I give everything I am into your care. You are are my owner. And we cows, we don't like that kind of language. Because we think we're independent. And we make a mess of things. I believe the words God helps those who help themselves are suspect because we can easily slip into thinking into this cow mentality that we don't need a shepherd. We just want a rancher God. We want a rancher God who shows up every few days, gives us a shot of vitamins in the rump, and kicks us back out in the pasture. says there, I'll harvest you when I get around to it. No relationship. Just Commodity. And that's a terrible way to think about God. So if you're still not convinced about whether or not, you know, you'd make a poor shepherd of yourself, then take this little test, these tests designed by pastor and author John Ortberg years ago. He says this, take this test, when you're approaching a stop traffic signal light in your car, and there are two lanes, there are two lanes, one is shorter than the other, do you try and estimate and guess which one is going to get through the light faster? Do you do this sort of calculation in your head? Like, okay, no? Well, here's another one. How about this little test? When you're at the grocery store, or like yesterday when I was at the movie theater, and I did this very thing, when you're at the grocery store choosing a checkout lane, do you find yourself counting how many people instantly are in each line, quickly assessing and counting, okay? And then you multiply that by the number of items they have in their hands or in what, how many are in their basket. Even sometimes looking at the particular kinds of items. Trying to decide if they'll have to get another checker here because that checker is not 18 and they're buying beer. So this is going to take even longer. And you're making these calculations, he says. And then even after you've picked a lane, at the grocery store, do you find yourself keeping track of imaginary yous in the other lines to see if they will arrive at the checkout counter before you do? (laughs) And then you either succeed or fail. This entire exercise that we suburbanites are professionals at indicate how desperate we are. We are constantly in a hurry. Who is whipping and driving your life? If I rewrote the 23rd Psalm, here's what it would say. Dan is my shepherd. I want it now. I miss the green stuff because I drove by too fast in the quiet waters. I'm splashing all around. With his rod and his staff, he just beats me and drives me on ruthlessly, telling me, go faster and further. You're not there yet. And here's the telling part of my 23rd Psalm. And you, you think, shepherd Dan, you think that your sacrificial pace of life makes you more holy and everyone loves you for it so what's your contentment level what anxiety is whipping and driving you along we get so used to it we don't even know we live that way we've got a hurried gun to our head are we going through life frustrated Judgmental, angry, quietly, even unconsciously judging everyone around us. They're too slow, they're too fast, they're too fat, they're too skinny. Comparison kills. Who is your shepherd? You or Christ? I'm afraid that the belief in the line God helps those who help themselves is just a prop perhaps for frenetic living. Just being frantic. God helps those who help themselves may just be a statement about how much we just don't understand how to be connected to the vine of Jesus. We've been cut off and we're trying to replant ourselves and start over and it's not working. I'm going to close things down this morning with a story. It's a little bit of a long story and you might think it's a little quaint and cheap and corny and a little silly, but it's one of my favorite stories and I've set it around here for years and quoted it, it comes from Tom Schmidt and it's recorded in a book called The Life You Always Wanted. And Tom Schmidt wrote this story. The state-run convalescence hospital is not a pleasant place. It's large, understaffed, overfilled with senile and helpless and lonely people who are waiting to die. On the brightest of days it seems dark inside and smells of sickness and stale urine. I went there once or twice a week for four years, but I never wanted to go there, and I always left with a sense of relief. It's not the kind of place one gets used to, you know. On this particular day, I was walking in a hallway that I had not visited before, looking in vain for a few who were alive enough to receive a flower and a few words of encouragement. This hallway seemed to contain some of the worst cases, strapped onto carts or into wheelchairs and looking completely helpless. As I neared the end of this hallway, I saw an old woman strapped up in her wheelchair. Her face was an absolute horror. The empty stare and the white pupils of her eyes told me that she was blind. The large hearing aid over one ear told me that she was almost deaf. One side of her face was being eaten by cancer. There was a discolored and running sore covering part of one cheek. And it had pushed her nose to one side and dropped one eye and distorted her jaw so that what should have been the corner of her mouth was the bottom of her mouth. As a consequence, she drooled constantly. I was told later that when new nurses arrived, the supervisor would send them to feed this woman, thinking that if they could stand the side of this, they could stand anything in the building. I also learned later that this woman was 89 years old and that she had been here bedridden, blind, nearly deaf, and alone for 25 years. This is Mabel. I don't know why I spoke to her. She looked less likely to respond than most people I saw in the hallway. But I put a flower in her hand, and I said, here's a flower for you. Happy Mother's Day. And she held the flower up to her face and tried to smell it, and then she spoke. And much to my surprise, her words, although somewhat garbled because of her deformity, were obviously produced by a clear mind. She said, thank you. It's lovely. But can I give it to someone else? I can't see it, you know. I'm blind. I said, of course. Of course. And I pushed her in her chair back down the hallway to a place where I thought I could find some alert patients. I found one. She stopped the chair. Mabel held out the flower and said, here, this is from Jesus. Mabel and I became friends over the next few weeks. And I went to see her once or twice a week for the next three years. And her first words to me were usually an offer of hard candy from a tissue box near her bed. Some days I would read to her from the Bible. And often when I would pause, she would continue reciting the passage from memory, word for word. On other days, I'd take a book of hymns and sing with her. And she would know all the words of the old songs for Mabel. These were not merely exercises in memory. She would often stop mid-hymn and make a brief comment about a lyric she considered particularly relevant to her own situation. I never heard her speak of loneliness or pain except the stress she placed on certain lines in certain hymns. During one hectic week of mine, I was frustrated because my mind seemed to be pulled in ten directions at once with all the things I had to think about, and the question occurred to me, what does Mabel have to think about hour after hour, day after day, week after week, not even able to know if it's day or night? So I went to ask her, Mabel, what do you think about when you lie here? She said, I think about my Jesus. I sat there and I thought for a moment about the difficulty of, for me of thinking about Jesus for even five minutes. And I asked, what do you think about Jesus? Quoting, I think about how good he's been to me. it has been awfully good to me in my life, you know. I'm one of those mostly satisfied. Lots of folks wouldn't care much for what I think. Lots of folks would think I'm kind of old-fashioned, but I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. And then Mabel began to sing an old hymn. Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without him, I would fall. And when I am sad, to him I go. No other one can cheer me so. And when I am sad, he makes me glad. He is my friend. Whatever you and I think our life is, and whatever's whipping us and driving us on, whatever we think we're supposed to be, and whatever help God is supposed to offer, and whatever cheap living we've fallen into, there is a higher story and a higher call. And it is not just a theological one, though important as it is. It is a relational one. And we would do well to lean into it and be deeply connected to it. Anything else is not Christianity. Would you stand with me, please? And we're going to end with reciting the 23rd Psalm. And, you know, if this isn't your thing and you don't believe this, and that's fine. Uh, just be polite and, you know, be polite. And um, so, but I thought this would be the appropriate way to end things, if we could, please. So join me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. Amen? Amen. Go in peace.